the Lord is risen. How beautiful is a church that can run this way through the streets of our world without fear, without schemes and stratagems, but solely with the desire to lead everyone to the joy of the gospel. I'm not sure who that female voice is, but the Italian speaker she's interpreting for is none other than Jorge Mario Bergoglio. At least, that's the name his parents gave him. These days, he's more commonly known as Pope Francis, the Bishop of Rome. Brothers and sisters, our hope has a name, Jesus. He entered our tomb of sin. He descended to the depths where we feel most lost. He wove his way through the tangles of our fears, bore the weight of our burdens, and from the dark abyss of death restored us to life and turned our mourning into joy. Let us celebrate Easter with Christ. He is alive. You're listening to an excerpt from a Pope Francis homily. He gave it during the Vatican's Easter Vigil on April 16th, 2022, the night before Resurrection Sunday. For with Jesus, the risen Lord, no night lasts forever. And even in the darkest night, in that darkness, the morning star continues to shine. Even if you're as Protestant as I am, and I am belligerently Protestant, You have to admit, not everything he's saying is wrong. Jesus did bear our burdens on the cross, and he is alive today. For Protestants, the doctrines Francis alludes to, the death, resurrection, and atonement of Jesus Christ, are central to our faith. There is no gospel, no salvation, apart from those truths. So if the Pope and the Catholic Church he represents believe that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again, why does John MacArthur say this? That the papacy is the biggest hoax ever foisted on the world. The biggest hoax ever. Popes who were fornicators and bribers and murderers and some who were good men in in the human sense dot the landscape of this history and make it impossible to see in it the work of God or any apostolic succession. It is unbiblical, it is unholy, and it is arrogant and idolatrous. Yikes. Maybe that sounds harsh. The biggest hoax ever foisted on the world? Why would John MacArthur say that about a fellow Christian? And what about the billions of Catholic faithful that follow the Holy Father. In the long war on the truth, the most formidable, relentless, and deceptive enemy has been Roman Catholicism. It is an apostate, corrupt, heretical, false Christianity. It is a front for the kingdom of Satan. If the Catholic Church is really, truly evil, and MacArthur clearly thinks it is, then why do so many Protestants believe something like this? We have far more in common than what divides us. When you talk about Pentecostals, Charismatics, Evangelicals, uh, Fundamentalists, Catholics, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, on, on, and on, and on. Well, they would all say, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the Bible. We believe in the resurrection. We believe salvation is through Jesus Christ. These are the big issues. That's Pastor Rick Warren, one of the most prominent evangelicals in America. He recently retired from Saddleback, the megachurch he founded in Orange County, California. And he's the author of the runaway bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life. By 2020, that book had sold 50 million copies and been translated into 85 languages. He is influential. And the view he just expressed in a video for Catholic news services is commonly held among many Protestants today. Now, there's still real differences, no, no doubt about that. But the most important thing is, if you love Jesus, we're on the same team. So which is it? Is the Catholic Church a front for the kingdom of Satan? 
Or is it what Warren and many evangelicals say, another member of Team Jesus? To truly understand why John has always drawn such a clear line between Catholics and Protestants, while so many evangelicals are blurring that line, we need to take a trip with MacArthur around the world. First, we'll go to the slums of India. And then back in time to a little town in Germany where a 16th century monk changed the world. Then fast forward to the middle of modern-day bustling Rome where a TMS alum is planting an evangelical church. And then we get to be a fly on the wall in a hotel conference room in Florida where R.C. Sproul jumped on a table and confronted one of his heroes. And then finally, I want to introduce you to Larry and Lauren Brown, a couple of former Catholics. We have lots to do, so join us on a journey as we look at the difference between the biblical gospel of salvation in Christ alone and a message that continues to deceive countless people. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. And this is season two of the podcast from the Center, The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. This episode, the fifth in season two, is titled MacArthur and Rome. We're going to tell this story in three acts. Act one is titled From California to Calcutta. I was in Calcutta, India, on a very extended mission trip staying at the rather primitive, what was known as the William Carey home. Very, very primitive kind of dirt floors. And because we were in Calcutta, which is, it's hard to explain if you haven't been there. You can't smell, you haven't been there. You can't watch a video and understand Calcutta. There's, um, There's a lot of leather industry there, and so there's this stench that's over the whole polluted city with humidity and unbearable heat. It's just a bizarre place. There's about a million people who live uh, in and around the Howley Bridge and there are tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands who live in the gutter and uh, the gutters run with a mixture of rainwater and everything else and it's their water supply and their sewer at the same time. So it's just just hard to understand the place. Mother Teresa has a home for the sick and dying there. It's right next to a uh, temple to the god Kali. Um, it's a phallic kind of religion. It's bizarre. My son Matt was with us, and um, he got extremely sick with dysentery. We all did. They were preparing food on the dirt floor, and he got so sick that they um, said, well, maybe we should go to the hospital. He's going to get dehydrated because, you know, it's, he, he's losing everything. So the, we were instructed not to go to the hospital because that's the worst place you could possibly be. So they, I'll never forget, a nurse, some kind of nurse came to the William Carey house where we were staying, and she said, we need to give him an IV. So she took a picture off the wall and hung up an IV bottle with a hook. And then she got the needle, and she, she pointed the needle upwards and cleaned it with her fingers and then stuck it in his arm and gave him an IV. So it was a... It was a difficult thing. The trip John is describing happened in the early 90s. Mother Teresa was at the height of her fame when John MacArthur's family paid her a visit. But part of that whole trip was we we were invited to go and meet Mother Teresa at um, the home for the sick and dying. And we sat down with her. It was was very interesting. She's, She's Eastern European. She's about I don't know, four foot eleven or something, tiny little thing. The kids had decided they wanted to give her a gift of the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. So my kids had that book in their hands. 
and um, we we went in to, to see her and talk to her and she talked about her at the time she had a home in New York City she had taken over some kind of a building and she was trying to house AIDS patients and she said this she said all my AIDS patients are uh, going to heaven all my AIDS patients are going to heaven and we looked at each other like that's really a strange thing to say um, and then she told us a little bit about her work which was essentially sort of Catholic charity to, to very sick sick people so they gave her the book and the response that she gave was may you enter into the heart of Jesus through the Virgin Mary and again, you know, that's, I don't know what kind of double talk that was, but it had nothing to do with anything. I remember we went to the Philippines from there, and we were so, of course, captivated by that experience. We took our film into a Photoshop. This was back when you had to have your film developed on the camera. And uh, the guy that developed it in the Manila Photoshop, just down the road from wherever we were staying, thought he had just had an epiphany, a divine intervention, because in the stack of pictures was a picture of Mother Teresa holding up the copy of the Gospel according to Jesus with a smile on her little face. And so the next day when we came back to pick up our film, we did a 24-hour film, the next day it was blown up to like four by six feet and it was in the window of the Photoshop. If anyone listening to this podcast lives in Manila, Mabuhay. Let me know if you ever pass a camera shop and see a giant photo of the MacArthur family and Mother Teresa smiling, holding a copy of John's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. I would love to see that. That book was the perfect gift. Though it doesn't talk specifically about the differences between Catholics and Protestants, it does address the issue at the heart of that divide, the gospel. What does it mean to be saved? Who will be saved? How does God save sinners? Even though there are countless religions, there are only two answers to that question. MacArthur always says this. He says there's only two religions, the religion of human achievement and divine accomplishment. This is Jordan Standridge. He's a missionary serving in Rome. He's a third generation missionary to Italy, the center of the Catholic faith. One thing you realize right away in, ta in talking to a Roman Catholic and, and studying their system is that it's a, it's completely human achievement. And the glory that, that comes with uh, a Roman Catholic, if, if he were to get to heaven based on Roman Catholicism, he would get all the glory. I mean, he's, he, you know, it started with somebody doing a baptism, you know, making the baby be baptized. But then after that, it's all the things that you do in order to earn the right to, to have Peter say you've, you've done well and come into heaven. Uh, so the entire system is based on merit. And because Roman Catholicism is, like so many other religions on earth, based on human achievement, it can be hard to distinguish it from other faiths. The difficulty that comes with, especially evangelicals in, in, in America, is that uh, the Roman Catholic Church is like a chameleon. And this, this is a famous saying. I think it was Spurgeon who said that it's like a chameleon. Um, but they adapt to whatever culture they're in. And that's exactly what John MacArthur found when he visited Mother Teresa. She had pictures of uh, Hindu gods inside this home for the sick and dying. It was so eclectic. It was right next to the Kali temple where they offered human sacrifice and they had phallic symbols. It was just the most bizarre kind of thing. And we, we all kind of came away and said, uh, she, she's as lost as Hindus because she didn't differentiate at all with regard to the religions. The American Roman Catholics will look a little differently because they're outnumbered in America. And so what they have to do in order to adapt to America is they have to look more Protestant. They have music in their churches, probably. They do other things that are more similar to, to Protestants, to evangelicals. Um, here in Italy, it's much more obvious. And as Catholics join the religions of the world in making good works heaven's litmus test, they place impossible burdens on the backs of their people. Here's Jordan with a heartbreaking story of that very thing from the Scala Santa, a Catholic relic 
in the middle of Rome. I was just at the Holy Steps just um, a couple weeks ago. Um, and the Holy Steps are famous because Constant, they say that Constantine brought him over for his, for his mother. And these are the steps that Jesus walked up to go see Pilate. Um, I'm not sure how they carried it to Rome, but maybe elephants, I don't know. These steps are really famous because Luther kind of had his, you know, he understood indulgences finally. He, he had his, is this really so moment that, that we like studying about in, in Reformed theology. But I was there a couple of years ago and there was this woman on a wheelchair who was trying to go up. She, she, she wanted to go up these steps, but she couldn't. And she was weeping. She was absolutely weeping and and you know i saw that and i was you know i was heartbroken because here's a lady even though there's probably there's i can remember a sign that said you know if you're if you're incapacitated or if you're una unable to to go up these steps that you can pray in your seat and still receive the indulgence and, and have your sins forgiven uh, but she wasn't buying it she knew she was she felt like she was missing something uh, and, and my heart broke over this. And, and it, it was because she was unable to save herself that she was crying in her seat. I asked Jordan what he says when he has the opportunity to talk about the gospel with someone like that woman. I think his response is helpful for anyone who wants to evangelize Roman Catholics. The best question that, I, that I've come up over the years is the evangelism explosion question. Um, if you were to die tonight and, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Every single Roman Catholic I've talked to uh, comes up with an answer that is human achievement. They, they come up with an answer that says something like, uh, you know, I've, I'm a good person or I've done, I've done more good than bad. Um, it's something based on themselves and what they've done. Um, and so sometimes I'll ask a, a, a follow-up question. You know, if, if you stand before God and God lets you in based on what you said, uh, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? I think that's a helpful question because they realize quickly that if it's based on a resume, they hand St. Peter or God, uh, they, they realize quickly that the glory goes to them. If they've merited it, if they've achieved it themselves, then they they realize that the God of glory, the, the, the creator of the universe, the one who merits all glory of, and praise of man, uh, is losing a little bit in that scenario. Sometimes I'll play it out for them, asking them, you know, telling them about, you know, if an angel were to see you in heaven, and and his his he's created to glorify God, to worship the Lord, and he sees you in heaven, you know, what's he gonna, what's he gonna think in that moment? Is he gonna think, good job, Jordan, because you got to heaven and you did a good job? If he does in that moment, he's not worshiping God. He's worshiping me as a human or praising me. Uh, the angel should see me in heaven and, and be propelled to worship God. Uh, you know, another human being should see, see me, another soul should see me in heaven and be propelled to worship God for his grace and mercy. And the only way is through a uh, divine accomplishment way of salvation is through uh, a system where God alone gets the full glory for your salvation, where you do nothing to merit it. You deserve hell for eternity and God in his mercy saves you uh, based solely on his will and his desire. When Jordan clearly and compassionately defines the differences between the religions of human and divine achievement, he stands in a long line of reformers that goes back more than 500 years. In the 1500s, a man named Martin Luther realized that the Catholic Church, which he served as a monk and a professor, was teaching the wrong religion, and millions were suffering because of it. Act 2 tells his story and the story of the movement he started. Act two, a monk changes the world. Martin Luther was a monk in the early 1500s who uh, took a vow uh, to become a worshiper of St. Anne in a thunderstorm. Please welcome Derek Thomas back to the podcast. In our last episode, he was the old, cool Calvinist that helped us all better understand TULIP. During our conversation on Calvinism, we also discussed Catholicism, the Reformation, and the life of Martin Luther. Attempted to save himself, uh, to find forgiveness of sins through good works, through repentance, through flagellation. 
Although, as this dutiful Catholic started to take a deeper look at the practices of the church, as well as the words of scripture, he started to see a wide chasm open between the two. He was troubled by the crassness of Catholicism in the early 16th century with its papal bulls and indulgences and getting money for the St. Peter's to, to paint it and so on um, and re, restructure it to get money from poor Catholic believers thinking that in giving the widows might uh, they would release some soul uh, out of heaven. It was very crass with, with people like Tetzel uh, selling these indulgences openly in, in the street, for which he saw absolutely no justification in the scriptures. So very early on, I mean, Luther was a scholar. He went to teach at university. Um, part of the curriculum was teaching through the Psalms. And I think Luther became very, very knowledgeable of what the scriptures actually teach. And I think he saw that what Catholicism taught on so many aspects was completely at odds with what the Bible was teaching. And in 1517, on October 31st, he saw the windows of heaven uh, opened as he saw the meaning of Romans chapter one, and the just shall live by faith, by faith alone. That the righteousness which God demands is a righteousness that he imputes, uh, the righteousness of Christ. He saw in very Lutheran sort of language, his filthy rags taken uh, and worn by Christ and Christ's spotless uh, robe of righteousness uh, being given to him to wear. I mean, Martin Luther was a lot of things, but uh, he, he was particularly uh, important in the recovery uh, of the doctrine, the Protestant doctrine, the biblical doctrine uh, of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. From Luther, the doctrine of justification by faith spread across Europe. So did his criticism of the Catholic Church, particularly the papacy, indulgences, and the priesthood. In 1521, he was called before an assembly of Catholic priests at the Diet of Worms. They demanded he reject the teaching that had sparked the Reformation. Here is the final paragraph of Luther's defense. Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Well, he famously said uh, that justification is the doctrine of the standing or falling of the church. Uh, that without the doctrine, the reformed Lutheran uh, biblical uh, doctrine of justification, there is no possibility of salvation. And without the possibility of salvation, there is no church. Uh, the church then completely disintegrates. So for Luther, it, it was the key doctrine. The Protestant Reformation Luther started became the defining movement of the 16th century and it did not say nice things about Rome and the Pope who led the Catholic Church. Based on his study of Scripture, Martin Luther finally declared, quote, We here are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. I owe the Pope no other obedience than that I owe to Antichrist. John Knox, 1505-1572, great Scottish Presbyterian, sought to counteract the tyranny which the Pope himself had for so many ages exercised over the church. He himself said the papacy is the very antichrist 
Pope being the son of perdition of whom Paul speaks. Thomas Cranmer, one of the great martyrs in England, died in 1556, said, "'Whereof it follows Rome to be the seat of Antichrist and the Pope to be the very Antichrist himself, I could prove the same by many scriptures.'" The Westminster Confession was written in 1647. The Westminster Confession, the Confession of the Reformer, says, "'There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God.'" The Reformers also rejected Mary worship. They didn't pray to Jesus' mother or believe she was divine. Men like John Calvin said that Jesus' mother Mary was blessed, but like all Protestants, Calvin taught that Mary was a sinner in need of a savior. In response to the Reformation, the Catholic Church has doubled down on their Mary worship, making it an even bigger point of emphasis than it was 500 years ago. You know, Mariolatry is much worse today than it was in Calvin's day. Uh, since Calvin's time, Mary, uh, the doctrine of uh, the impeccability of Mary uh, in the late 19th century and the doctrine of the assumption of Mary in the 20th century. So um, Mary has been venerated to the mediatrix. How you understand that will probably differ from one uh, from one location to another, but there's no doubt that in Latin America, Mary is worshipped as God. And you can use all of the distinctions worthy of Aquinas as to as to what that actually means in, in Catholic thought. But in the in the pew, it means she she is right up there with, with God and maybe even higher. And clearly that's idolatry. Lies like that are why John MacArthur preaches sermons like this. Tonight we are going to do the second in a series on the idolatry of Mary worship. One guy, I'll never forget, his name was Mario. And I walked up to uh, him. He was a shoe salesman. And I told him I was an uh, evangelical Christian. And then he said, oh, I know who you are. You're the people that don't believe that Mary was taken up into heaven. And I said, you got me. <laughs> you got me. That's, that's me. Uh, he, and he goes, why don't you believe it? It's in the Bible. It's in the book of Acts. And, and I had just read the entire book of Acts in the last few days because I was reading through the whole Bible in the 10 weeks. And I said, man, I just read that whole book and I was reading fast, but, but I don't think it's in there, man. And he said, he grabbed my Bible and started scrolling through. And, he, and I told him that I was coming back the next day. And so he said, well, come back tomorrow. I'll show you where it is. And so I came back the next day and I walked up to him. He was uh, about to start selling shoes and as soon as he saw me, he started yelling at me, go away. I don't want to talk to you. Go away. And I said, sir, did you read Acts? He goes, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. And he sat down in his chair and put his hands in his face. And, and just no matter what I said, he would just yell out loud, go, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. And then he finally said, the priest lied to me. The priest lied to me. Jordan says interactions like that are why he's a missionary, why he went to seminary and moved his family to Rome. He wants to help that shoe salesman the woman at the Scala Santa, and the millions of Italians that don't know they're part of a false church. In the Roman Catholic Church, there's this belief that you have to uh, trust the priest, uh, that you need the priest in order to uh, interpret scripture correctly. And so a lot of people never read the Bible. They just kind of just trust what the priest tells them. They trust the, the catechism of the Catholic Church. They trust the rituals and the and the actions that they do in order to get them saved. And, and they never open up the Bible to read it for themselves. And so, um, and so that, that, that vivid memory is one of the ones that I carry with me um, that really give me the, gave me at the time the, the desire to study and go to ministry and then specifically to be a missionary to Italy. The Roman Catholic Church is to the New Testament era what the Pharisees were in Judaism. They were whited sepulchers, on the outside painted white, full of dead men's bones. They were themselves sons of hell, producing more sons of hell. And Jesus' most scathing maledictions that ever came out of his lips and were recorded in the New Testament are found against the false religious leaders in Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them together were denounced top to bottom because of their false religion. And when I say false, it doesn't mean that they didn't know the name of the Old Testament God 
or the prophets or the books of the Old Testament, but they believed that they could earn their salvation through morality and ritual. And that is exactly why Jesus condemned them as the Old Testament comes to its end, and that is the same exact thing that Roman Catholicism is to the New Testament truth and the New Testament church and gospel. In their battle against the Catholic Church, the Reformers stood on five solas, doctrines that were the foundation of the Reformation, the distinction between Protestants and Catholics, and the essence of the true gospel. They are sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, according to Scripture alone. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Here's MacArthur's good friend, R.C. Sproul, explaining why Protestants care so much about that Latin word sola, meaning alone. That word alone has emerged as something of a shibboleth in church history, not in the pejorative sense, in the negative sense, but in the positive sense of a shibboleth, that, that this is a, a watershed statement that separates uh, people on what they really believe. Now, to get to the heart of that, let me jump down the funnel to the bottom line of the controversy historically between the Roman Catholic Church and evangelicals that provoked the Reformation. God is just, God is righteous, and I'm not. How can I possibly survive a tribunal before a just and holy God? Since I know that that God requires and demands perfect righteousness for him to justify anyone. And so the issue in the 16th century was not whether God demands righteousness in order for him to declare somebody just. But the issue is, where do we get that righteousness? The Protestant view was this, that the only righteousness that has the merit necessary to meet the requirements of the holiness of God is that righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. There's where the word alone comes in, because all Protestants have acknowledged historically that the phrase justification by faith alone really means it's shorthand for justification by the righteousness of Christ alone, that only his righteousness is sufficient to save us. The Roman Catholic Church said that the only way God will ever declare me righteous or you righteous or anybody else righteous is if they have a righteousness that inheres within them an intrinsic righteousness. They would say that you can't be righteous apart from the, the help of Christ and the grace of Christ and the infusion of his power and so on with which you must assent and cooperate, assentare, cooperare is the language they use. Now that's all the difference in the world. And the, the word alone is trying to draw a line in the sand and say that the gospel of Jesus Christ says that the only way a person can be saved is by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. For centuries, those battle lines were clearly drawn. Protestants held tightly to the five solas. They were willing to die defending them, and many did at the hands of the Catholic Church. But as time marched on and the Reformation receded into the past, Protestants and Catholics became more and more aligned on social issues in an increasingly secular society. Arguably, the most famous example of that growing cooperation between the two sides happened in 1994. Few public controversies have defined John MacArthur's ministry more than what we're going to talk about in Act 3. Act 3, R.C. on the table. 
Okay, we're headed back to 1994 with a document that at the time was hailed as the most significant development in Protestant and Catholic relations since the Reformation. It was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. The ECT, the Evangelicals and Catholic Together document, as we call it, was written by 20 well-known evangelical leaders and 20 well-known Roman Catholic leaders. That's the voice of John Ankenberg. He's a Christian apologist and TV show host. He has what I would say is perfect hair. The audio is from a conversation he moderated in 1994, not long after ECT was published. The purpose of this document was stated to be, number one, to provide a statement that would advance Christian fellowship, cooperation, and mutual trust between evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics. Number two, it was to provide a worldview for Protestants and Catholics to unite on in defense of the truth here in the North American culture wars. That is, these men saw the benefit of Catholics and Protestants standing and fighting together on the critical moral issues of our day. And third, the document was written to establish some basis for civility and mutual respect between Roman Catholics and Protestants in Latin America and some other countries who, because of rivalry, were in conflict over evangelism. Ankenberg was interviewing D. James Kennedy, R.C. Sproul, and John MacArthur. All three refused to sign ECT, but several prominent Orthodox Protestants did, including J.I. Packer, author of Knowing God, a book that MacArthur calls one of the most influential he had ever read. Another signer of the ECT document was Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and Chuck Colson, former special counsel to President Richard Nixon and the founder of Prison Fellowship. All three of these men loved the Lord. They had written helpful books, especially Packer, that held tightly to the biblical gospel. So why did Kennedy, Sproul, and MacArthur oppose ECT and these men's decision to sign it? Here's MacArthur's explanation from that discussion with Ankenberg, Sproul, and Kennedy. I think the way we can work together on it is for the Catholics to work against those things like they want to work against them, and we'll work against those things like we'll, we want to work against them, but we can't, really, we can't really throw our arms around each other in a common effort because that confounds the issue of spiritual truth. Um, look, if the Catholic Church is already a co-belligerent, uh, if they're already anti-abortion and uh, pornography and homosexuality, they're going to use all of their energies within the framework of their system to, to go after that. We're committed to that, and we're going after that. There's already a collective movement. Once you then sort of try to define that as common spiritual mission built on common spiritual unity, you just take doctrine and throw it out the window. And perception... Is, is, is violated, particularly because the Catholic Church claims to be true Christianity. And when we reverse 450 years of history and just throw our arms around the Roman system, which I think we have to say, John, in all honesty, is not a group of wayward brothers, but is an apostate form of Christianity. It is a false religion. It is another religion. When you throw your arms around that, you, you, you literally have to, to undo any doctrinal distinction. And in fact, ECT doesn't just do that implicitly, they do it explicitly. In the document, in effect, they say we have to accept all baptized Roman Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in an article that followed that up in Christianity Today, J.I. Packer said, we should acknowledge as brothers and sisters in Christ anyone who lives to the highest ideals of their communion. Calling Catholics brothers and sisters in Christ is not helpful. It's not clear. It blurs the line between the true gospel and a false version. I didn't sign evangelicals and Catholics together because I did not believe the document represented the truth. We, we do not belong to the same side. We're not on the same team. We aren't a part of one church. We aren't one body. We aren't both in the body of Christ. We don't preach the same gospel. We don't believe the same things. There was no way in the world that I would ever sign that document because 
it isn't just that we're close but not close enough. It is that we couldn't be further apart. Paul said, look, if if we're saved by law, then grace is no more grace. So just put the law in there and you've just obliterated grace altogether. Concern for the clarity of the gospel, for exactly what John just talked about, motivated Kennedy, Sproul, and MacArthur to voice their concern privately before they expressed it publicly. That happened in a hotel conference room somewhere in Florida. No one seems to remember exactly where, but they can remember vividly the discussion. At times, it was a debate. For moments, it was a full-blown argument. John certainly would say this 1994 meeting was one of the most intense of his ministry. On my side, really, was Jim Kennedy, R.C. Sproul, and myself. There were some other people there. Uh, and the question was exactly that. Is a Catholic saved? And um, the people on the other side, Packer, Bill Bright, and Colson, were affirming the, the, that a Catholic person was saved. Um, I would say Colson maybe was driving that affirmation, and he was getting agreement from the other guys. We were saying they can't be saved because they believe salvation is by works. They wouldn't deny grace but they would deny grace alone. And that was the issue. And it got pretty volatile. At one point, R.C. stood up and actually got up on the table and pointed to one of the other guys and said, I don't think you get it. We're talking about whether you're going to heaven or hell. Because they kept mystifying the issue. They kept fogging up the issue. Well, you know, they're a part of the church and and they, in their hearts, they believe in Christ and et cetera, et cetera. But they are, and I think this is where you have to go, and that's why I started with this. They are to Christianity what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were to Judaism. They are near but far, far away. And that's because they have the wrong gospel. It's a gospel of works and law and performance and morality and ritual and baptism. And none of that has anything to do with salvation. It's not hard to imagine R.C. Sproul standing on a table, waving his arms, passionate about the true gospel, yelling something like, What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. It's also not hard to imagine the damage this document could have caused if every evangelical leader signed it. If no one stood up for the same truths of the Reformation that had caused that first break between Luther and the Catholic Church. John was there in the 1990s defending the clear gospel against those who would blur it. He's been defending the gospel for more than 50 years because he knows souls are at stake. He's seen countless individuals come to Christ because they understood the clear distinction between what the Catholic Church says about salvation and what the Bible actually teaches. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, I grew up in a, I had uh, two brothers, and my father was Presbyterian and my mother was Catholic. And they got married. The deal was that if you were Catholic, you could marry a Protestant as long as you made sure that your kids were raised Catholic. And so that was the deal. This is Larry Brown. He and his wife, Lauren, are an institution here at Grace Community Church. She leads the women's ministry. Together, they've served on high school staff for more than 30 years. I and a number of my friends became altar boys, and I happened to become like kind of the head altar boy of the altar boys when I got old enough. And uh, it was uh, it had a certain level of prestige, but more than anything, it was the autonomy that you could move around in an otherwise boring ceremony and be engaged in it. And, you know, you could handle the incense and uh, the, the altar wine, which was always a big plus. Larry briefly considered becoming a priest, 
but the idea of being a lifelong single was not appealing. I have a very similar background to Larry because I was raised in a Catholic home with my mom, who was and remains Catholic, and my dad, who was a Protestant. And so I'm one of seven children, and we were raised attending Catholic church and Catholic grammar school, and then I went to Catholic high school as well. This is Lauren, Larry's wife. When I went to university, I went to a secular university, but the first thing that I did was find a Bible study. And so I found a Bible study that was affiliated with a local church here in Los Angeles. And that was the first time that I ever heard the concept that mankind, individual man, me, had to be responsible for one's own sin. And that I needed to recognize that it was my sin that cost Christ his life. It was my sin that God gave his son in order to reconcile me to him and have a relationship with him. So it was October of that year that I recognized that all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that was real for me. And the Lord enlightened my heart and mind and allowed me to confess that and come to him begging for forgiveness and thanking him for the price that was paid. Yeah, I had a different path uh, in this regard. I mean, we had very similar upbringings, but whereas she transitioned from Catholicism to Christianity, I transitioned from Catholicism to nothing. And um, my life is fine, but it's, it's, it's somewhat pointless. There's no real visceral reason for it. And that started to bother me. In his Holy Spirit-inspired search for purpose, Larry eventually was invited to Grace Community Church. I remember I went in, drove in by myself, walked over and walked in and sat down in the, the pew towards the back, of course. And I heard John. And I was amazed. I was stunned that here was a guy that's didn't require you to park your brain at the door and spoke eloquently, but but in another way, simply, you know, it wasn't like he was trying to overwhelm you, but he wasn't trying to water it down. And it was very, very, it, it was sensible. It just made sense. And it was all about the Bible. And it was 45 minutes of teaching Rather than ritual, there weren't any chasubles up there and silver chalices or anything. It was just him up there at this podium teaching. Wow, this is amazing. And that was it. I was, I was locked into Grace Church at that moment. I, I said, I'm coming back. I, I got to hear more of this. And uh, that's where I ended up. And that's also where he met Lauren. Today, they are two of thousands that have come to Grace Church out of Roman Catholicism. That is why John MacArthur did not sign evangelicals and Catholics together. And that's why he has preached an uncompromisingly clear gospel again and again. He knows that souls are at stake. Souls like Larry and Lauren Brown like the millions of Italians Jordan seeks to evangelize. We don't do Catholic bashing. We do Catholic evangelism. They know Jesus by name. They know God by name. They know the cross and the resurrection, and they know the Bible stories. And so I've always found that Roman Catholicism is the most fertile soil that we've known here in our church, and that's that's because we have a population in California, which now the majority of come out of Catholic backgrounds. But they, I was talking to a guy today who was saved at Grace Church out of Catholicism, and his basic statement was, I lived in total fear. I had no idea I was going to heaven. In fact, it seemed to be the church's responsibility 
to make sure I never knew I was going to go to heaven, that I never felt secure, that I never felt assured, and that the only thing that threatened me was that I was going to, if I missed hell, I was going to end up in purgatory, and so I needed to work like crazy to try to minimize purgatory and, and get to heaven. But he said, I never, ever was told in my whole Catholic experience that I could know I was on the way to heaven. Well, if that's how Roman Catholics feel, it, it seems to me that that's the first group you would take the good news to, that you can know that you're going to heaven. And that's what we've done through the years. To have a faithful ministry, Christians must make a clear distinction between what the Bible actually teaches about salvation and what any religious system says is the way to heaven. That is worth the battle. That is worth standing on the table. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. In our sixth episode, we're going to talk about the critics that John MacArthur has faced. And over the years, he's had his fair share of criticism. How has he responded? And how should we respond when we're criticized? That's next time on The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. The Entrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Special thanks to Cody Signore, Jordan Standridge, Derek Thomas, and the Browns. For more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, visit tms.edu. ATD out. Thank you.